G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Glad that you could join us. Um, I think you'll find it very handy to, to keep your Bible app open as we go through because I've got quite a few places to take us um, across our Bible. Today I'd like to tackle a question that perhaps you've quietly pondered from time to time. Um, You see we're in between two larger sort of preaching series here on our Sunday mornings um, at the present time and so it's an opportunity as we're sort of between them to pick a theme, a a topic, a question, a riddle and dig deep on that and this particular um, question that we're looking at today we tossed around at our young adults Bible study a month or so ago. Here it is, are we as a human race evil? Are we truly sinful and evil and incurably flawed, but for the the direct and personal intervention of God in the gospel? Uh, Romans chapter 3, if you're quick, you might like to turn there, Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament, but I'll read it to you, uh, describes the human race with this rather bleak summary, uh, which I read from time to time. It's actually sampling various Psalms uh, and uh, a passage from Isaiah as well, and it holds nothing back. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. What shall we conclude then, writes Paul the Apostle, a Jewish man, what shall we conclude then? Do we, as in we Jews, have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, that is non-Jews, so everyone, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, Romans chapter 3 verse 11. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God, all have turned away, they have together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Does Paul leave you in any doubt as to his assessment, his answer to the question, are we really evil? Um, And it's not just Paul or Paul plus the Psalms, Uh, the um, quite brilliant living French theologian Henri Blocher uh, writes, he summarises, I think, the whole Bible when he says this, preoccupation with sin is one of the hallmarks of biblical religion. I think he's right. Preoccupation with sin is one of the hallmarks of biblical religion. But are we really evil? Are we really evil? And I'm I'm asking the question, does the Bible match the world that we see um, from our eyes, in our lives? Uh, Is its assessment fair of the people that we know, uh, of the uh, people whom we love and fall in love with and work for and work alongside and celebrate birthdays with and, and sit beside on the bus and wait behind in the queue at the shops? Does it describe the children whom we raise and the parents who raised us? Does it describe us? Are we really evil? Do you see where the question bites? Here's why I think it matters, because it isn't just an abstract question, a philosophical conundrum about religion or whatever. It runs to the question of whether I even like the God whom I meet 
in the Bible and whether I want to spend my life serving with him? Doesn't it scratch at those kind of deeper questions, personal questions? Have you ever been troubled by the question? It may sound philosophical and abstract, but I think it's uh, a reality check, really, on the plausibility of our faith itself. Are we really evil? May I just say, um, at the outset, I I think the popular caricature of the Christian religion, uh, the straw man that our culture holds up of Christianity, is that God is an overzealous, persnickety killjoy. This is one of the caricatures, there are many. Uh, God is obsessed with things that don't really matter, so the caricature goes. More, God's irrelevant, probably outdated Uh, at best quaint rules, they kind of stifle human freedom and flourishing and creativity. He's obsessed with his rules and belligerently kind of intolerant of our frailty and failings and inability to keep up. There's the caricature. And I want to say, if that's the God that we meet in the Bible and his negative assessment of us, on the one hand, his rules do seem then kind of irrelevant But on the other, doesn't it make the Christian life seem rather uninspiring, unattractive, even unlivable and probably not really worth it? Friends, but I want to say as we get into the Bible, if we learn to frame evil as God's Word actually does, not the caricature, and to see the goodness of our good God as he really is, in contrast to evil, good and evil, then perhaps there is a life before us that isn't only good for us, in some prim and proper sense, far more, that we, that we might actually find compelling and infectious and desirable and wonderful before our eyes, a life that might call, our very, call us away from evil and towards good, not just with our hands, what we do with our lives, but our hearts and our heads as well. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father God in heaven, uh, I'm not really sure that there's any such thing as a, an objective, dispassionate discussion of evil and good and sin and righteousness uh, because we have a bias in all of this. Father, within us we recognise that we want to minimise our own culpability and guilt uh, and we, we see that that's a normal human behaviour And yet, Father, none of us here, I trust, would attempt to claim perfection either. So would you please grant us this morning a sober self-reflection, a self-aware openness to see even ourselves in an unflattering light where that is good and right and proper and fair. And also, would you please give us a more expansive sense of wonder and desire for what's good? Uh, Yes, even a revulsion at evil, a longing and a thirst for goodness, even in ways that challenge and and change perhaps long-established patterns in our lives and behaviours that frankly may be overdue for change. Would you be our good and truthful guide, please, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Could we begin here? I'd like to begin uh, by saying that biblically, evil is a weighty word, which is maybe an obvious thing to say. Evil is a weighty word to be used of weighty things. Uh, Evil describes not just naughty, silly, um, or even just nasty kind of people, nor the acts that they commit, 
Um, but more fundamentally, the main Bible words for evil describe a world whose goodness lies in tatters. Um, it's a weighty word. If, uh, to use a couple of quick illustrations, if goodness is the aircraft in all of its glory, then evil is the wreckage of that aircraft on the mountainside. If goodness is the friendship that's warm and lovely and wonderful and lasting, evil is the bust-up and the fighting and the feud as it all falls apart. It's a weighty word. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. I'm saying that evil is the ruin of something that was originally beautiful and especially in relation to God and His plans for that thing. Come with me to some very familiar words. I know that we traverse this terrain fairly regularly, but let's come there anyway. Genesis chapter 1, right at the very start of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis, the first book in God's Word to us. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And please note that this, the bit that we're about to read, which actually concentrates on good, goodness in contrast to evil, this comes before there are any commands or rules. You know, when we think of evil, we might think of commands and stuffing up and all of that sort of stuff. This comes before there are thou shalts or thou shalt nots. And we see God and a good, not evil, but good world that he has invested himself in. He made and he loved, he steps back and he marvels at this world. So, in Genesis chapter 1, have you got it there? Um, I'll pick out some verses, so follow it with your eyes if you could. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Skip down to verse 4. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Down to verse 10, God called the dry ground land and the the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the land produced its vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds and God saw that it was good. Verse 16, God made two great lights Uh, and into verse 18 it tells us to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, so God created the great creatures of the sea. Uh, The end of that verse, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock and on it goes and all the creatures that move along the ground. The end of the verse, and God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And may I just highlight uh, that within that, of course, verse 26, we appear, humankind, uh, within this very good world that God has carefully, lovingly crafted, invested himself in. If we're going to discuss evil, we need to start with good. That's what I'm saying, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We see this very good world in a harmonious relationship with God who wants his children to shine out his likeness and his image to the world for him. What I'm saying is, we are made good. If we're going to wrestle with the question of, am I really evil? We've got to start there. 
We were made good, a delight to God Himself. Let us not lose sight of that. Uh, curiously enough, uh, over in chapter 5, if you just flick, flick over there, Adam's children are described in the very same terms. Did you notice that? So, uh, there in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, this is the written account of Adam's family line. So, this is after the Cain and Abel incident. When God created mankind, He made them in the likeness of God. So, God created mankind in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them, verse 2, and He named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. My point is this, friends. When we see God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, after evil's entry into the world, there's a conundrum for another time, and as we hear God calling for Adam... Adam, his image and his likeness, seeking his creatures, his children, if I can use that term in light of the way that Genesis 5 speaks of the children of Adam bearing his image and likeness, I think we see a world in which God loves his world that now lies in ruin. Goodness and evil, do you see, are framed not as moral abstracts, uh, in unreasonable rules and laws, but in relationship, a God whose goodness was supposed to shine out into the world from the children He created and loved and made to live in it. So, what was lost was not so much some fruit from a particular tree that God had a bit of a thing about. We lost, broke, ruined a loving faithfulness to God in His world that we might walk in His ways and lead our world uh, in a way that shines with God-likeness to the world, in ways that are lovely and very good. We lost that. There's evil. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Chapter 2, verse 17. Do you see? Goodness is the path not so much of the prim and proper, the persnickety, uh, as of a free and loving relationship glowing in this unpolluted delight in God and His ways and His world. Evil is the wreckage that we introduced through our sin. So the question then becomes, and this is my second point, where lies the path back where lies the path back to that very good world, to harmony with God and humankind and creation? Does it perhaps lie within us? Might it lie within you and me, humankind, if we ruin things, maybe it lies within our power to put things back together. Are we good in that sense? Do we have that capacity for good, to put things back to good? And depressingly, of course, the story of Genesis, and I want to say the story of history as well, by the way, but that's a much broader, expansive discussion, um, offers us little ground for hope. Uh, my second point is evil lies beyond our ability to repair, tragically. Turn with me to Genesis 6. Uh, some 
depressingly familiar words, the Lord saw how great... Uh, I'm, at cha- I'm at verse 5 of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I find this even heavier, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Just notice there that he walked with God. I think there's an intentional little glimpse. We're reminded of the cool of the day in the garden. Perhaps Noah will fare better than Adam and Eve did. Perhaps it lifts our hopes a little bit, do you see? Let's watch and see how this works. Does humanity have within it what it needs to return to good? On a related note, um, have you heard of a bloke named Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, He uh, he lived last century, um, author, philosopher, um, activist. Uh, The first book that I read of his was called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Has anyone read it? Yeah, there's a few hands there. So I I don't remember this about many books, but I remember buying that particular book because of the comment that the sales guy, the the guy that I bought it from, that he made, I can't remember it word for word, but it was was kind of like I handed it, I put it on the counter and he's like, oh, there's a depressing read. He's trying to sell me the book. And that was his review. Anyway, Solzhenitsyn, um, why? He lived in the former Soviet Union. He spent time in the gulags as a political prisoner. He suffered with um, undiagnosed and therefore untreated cancer for a time. It almost killed him. He was exiled um, in his own country after, I think, I think it was eight years in the gulags and then exiled within um, uh, the Soviet Union. My point is, he knew a thing or two about evil because it happened to him but he saw evil as a problem in here every bit as much as a problem out there that happened to him, which in his circumstance, I just find extraordinary. Uh, In another book, he puts it like this. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary... I don't know why I'm waving at this side of the room. Sorry, guys. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Brothers and sisters, the answer that God's Word gives to that question and I think history gives to that question and let me be bold, I think our own experience leads us to conclude is this, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Not me. I think from Genesis onwards, uh, Noah, 
you sort of trace your way through the story of Genesis. Noah is succeeded in the story uh, very quickly by Abraham and by Isaac, by Jacob uh, and his 12 sons that become the 12 tribes, a a nation under Moses, first in Egypt, uh, through the Exodus. Then it's led by the judges, the judges, goodness gracious, in all of their flawed strength, by the kings the kings and their many wives and mistresses, their military excesses, their self-absorbed neuroses. Not them either. Not one of them. We created a wreckage around us. Why? Because there lies an evil wreckage within us. I think that's what the Bible shows. I think it's what history shows. I think it's even what our own personal experience shows. Romans summarises it a little later in that same chapter, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the hope was perhaps a person would come, a man or a woman one day would appear willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. If the hope was, can't we find someone so fixed on what is good that they would deny themselves and give themselves again, not only to God, but to the very goodness of the world itself and its people, someone that we could follow, someone who listens to God and heeds His Word at every point, someone who loves good more than he loves his own skin. Can you think of anyone? Would you seriously put yourself forward for that role? Interestingly, it's not just once we get to the New Testament. Isaiah the prophet, um, speaking late in Israel's history, makes the point that, um, well, firstly, it's not as if God didn't give him a good shot at finding some candidate, finding someone who could bring the goodness of God and overturn the evil of the human heart and the human experience. Uh, like, God gave them a really good shot for generations that became centuries. What more could I give you? What more could you want from me in support of that project? Uh, So God's speaking in Isaiah 65. Maybe if you could quickly turn back there to Isaiah 65. Isaiah is a big book just after the middle of the Old Testament. The middle in terms of, the middle of the Bible, the middle in terms of um, pages, but not in terms of history. We're late in the Old Testament now around 700 BC or thereabouts. Isaiah chapter 65, that's big number 65 in the text, starting at the very beginning of that chapter, where God is speaking and He says, I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me, I was found by those who didn't seek me, to a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I'm too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day, See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. Just come down to verse 12. I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in the slaughter, for I called 
but you didn't answer. I spoke, but you didn't listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. From Adam right through Israel to Solzhenitsyn and our own self-absorbed selves. Haven't we chosen the same way? Hard as it may be to stomach, each of us. Theoretically, sure, we, we could have thrown ourselves and our lives and our hearts at the very good of a life before God to shine His love to the world. But who is willing to destroy a piece of His own heart? Which leads thirdly to perhaps the obvious point that God and God alone is willing to destroy Himself to bring an end to evil. Uh, And I'll be blunt and say, I think this is the single point, would you agree, that is entirely lost in the hollow caricature of how Christians talk about evil and think about evil and conceive of evil in the popular imagination? Because I want to say, if you want to understand good and evil in a Christian way, if you want to understand God and evil, you must grasp what Isaiah was longing for. Just continue from verse 17 of that same chapter, Uh, still God speaking... Uh, And God says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. It's supposed to evoke all of that Genesis chapter 1, that goodness, uh, sort of an image before us. The former things will not be remembered. So the former things, as in what the world has become, will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. You notice it's this new world. And notice there are people there, like real people. And notice it is good. And it makes us wonder, what on earth happened to evil? Where did it go? How did it go? Well, God says, I will create do you remember that moment um, in the gospel stories? Those of you who know your Bibles well will, will, um, will well recognise this story. Do you remember the moment in the gospel stories where there's that impressive young man, we call him the rich young ruler, uh, the rich young ruler, that impressive young man, wealthy, successful, admired, uh, pious, he comes to Jesus with the million dollar question there in Mark chapter 10 um, and I'll just read it to you in Mark chapter 10 verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, good teacher, He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you see the problem with the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, Uh, honour your father and mother... Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Friends, the very best among us must one day 
admit that we're not as good as we might wish or imagine. Um, our, our trouble is that we may well lead pretty inspiring lives, some of us, uh, lovely and noble and creative and do wonderful things with our lives. Uh, we were created very good and so that shouldn't surprise us that the human race is capable of spectacular things. But the Bible is calling us to something so consuming and whole and grand. It's calling us to aspire to nothing less than an unpolluted world in which the love of God radiates out from every single one of us, radiates out from every single fibre of us, and a world where God himself is pleased to walk in the very midst of his children, that kind of thoroughgoing goodness. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me one more thing. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. But Jesus also says down in verse 27 of that passage, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Which leads to our final point, our final point, fourth point, the end of evil and living the good life. Because at the end of Mark chapter 10, Jesus said these famous words describing himself, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, we find Jesus as the one answer to Solzhenitsyn's question, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart to bring an end to evil? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is willing to destroy his own heart to bring an end to evil? Christ is. Christ was willing to give his life as a ransom for many. So, brothers and sisters, we began with the question, are we really evil? I suppose I'd like to press back against it with a different one. How can we ever hope to become really good, truly good? Could it be not that God has demanded too much, but that we have dreamed of ever being too little and we've kind of given up on the hope? Don't we wish that we lived now in the world that we had at the beginning, back in Genesis, except without the fear that it was all going to come apart? A very good world that God could not only step back and survey with delight my image and my likeness, my very good world, but more, a world in whose midst he would walk, not in judgment and sorrow and with a word of curse, but where love has won and evil has lost. And we are there by the grace of God and our goodness is there in uncomplicated delight. Don't we long for that? That world began, brothers and sisters, at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart to bring an end to evil. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you see the picture? Christ has won, and evil has lost. 
And the good life now is the life that asks not what I must do, what must I do, good teacher, but what he has done, is doing and will do and how do we live by faith in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our God of goodness and our God of love, our God who indeed does hate evil and despises wickedness and hasn't allowed evil to triumph. Father, we confess that our imagination for goodness has been too small much of the time and probably our estimate of evil and even our own evil has been too trivial. Father, may we learn to marvel at the loveliness of Christ, his true goodness, his self-giving And Lord, may we contrast that with our own slowness to give ourselves to your very good ways. Yes, the rules and the laws, but so much more than that, to a relationship of worship to you, a devotion to goodness that would lead us to give our very selves so that your image and likeness might shine from us to the people around us, the people we live with and work with. Father, as we see Christ's life and his death, and his hope for us of a new creation. We want to leave evil behind and we want to learn to want to leave evil behind and live now like there's good to get on with. So would you help us today to leave evil behind, to even inspire and encourage others, not so much to do so as to get eternal life, but to find Christ, marvel at him together, take hold of his forgiveness and be gripped by his goodness to us in the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.